Good afternoon. I want to thank all of you dedicated uh, transportation buffs who uh, braved both the D.C. traffic and uh, this wonderful weather uh, to come out and talk about uh, transportation policy and the uh, tra reauthorization of the transportation bill. You know, it does say something about where we've gotten to in Washington where Congress can't even agree on a transportation bill uh, because there's usually nothing they like more than spending money uh, back home on uh, roads, bridges, parking lots, bicycle paths, and anything else they can, can dream up. Uh, but this year they seem to have run into some problems with the transportation bill, and we're going to be talking a little bit about that, possibly. Uh, of course, there has been a whole question about this transportation bill this year. Uh, some people have maintained uh, that uh, there's problems with it. It, it increases the, the deficit the way it's being done. They're playing games with the, uh, the Highway Trust Fund uh, and some, uh, some budgetary gimmicks, uh, as we've seen in the past. Uh, on the other hand, other people may you know, maintain that this is a much better transportation bill than we've seen in the past because uh, it does not include all the earmarks that have been a traditional uh, high point of the transportation bills, uh, uh, not quite as much pork as there's been in the past. Uh, and still others have raised the question about whether or not, you know, what's the federal government doing involved in highways to begin with? Uh, why should the federal government be using federal tax dollars to build a, uh, a bicycle path in uh, Tacoma Park, uh, which is, I believe, one of the items on the list. Uh, at any rate, uh, we have a, a group of speakers here today going to talk a little bit about the, the highway bill and how it's funded and whether or not there's a better way to handle all of this. Uh, first up will be Randall O'Toole uh, from here at Cato, my colleague. Uh, he is a senior fellow here. Uh, he works on a, on a host of issues, uh, including urban growth, public lands, transportation, uh, housing, a number of issues that, uh, that deal with the quality of life. Uh, among his books are The Vanishing Automobile and Other Urban Myths, uh, The Best Laid Plans, and uh, Gridlock, Why We're Stuck in Traffic and What to Do About It. Uh, he's got numerous studies out there, and his most recent work, Ending Congestion by Refin Refinancing Highways, is available outside there. If you haven't gotten a hold of it, you should. After Randall makes uh, his opening remarks, we've got a couple of folks who are going to respond to that. Uh, first up will be Adrian Moore, the Vice President for Policy at the Reason Foundation, uh, whose goal, who, uh, along with Sam Staley, uh, co-authored Mobility First, A New Vision for Transportation in a Globally Competitive 21st Century. Uh, and then we have Ron Ut, who's a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation, where he does research on housing, transportation, and federal budgetary matters. Uh, he's also uh, the, uh, created and edited the journal Economic Growth and the Journal of Regulation and Social Costs. Uh, and he's the author of A Guide to Smart Growth, Shattering Myths, Providing Solutions, and 21st Century Highways, Innovative Solutions to American Transportation Needs. So it's quite a panel of transportation experts today. With that, I'm going to turn it over to Randall, and uh, let's hear a little bit about transportation. All right. Thank you, Michael. Well, Michael talked about the transportation bill. Of course, we've got two bills. We have a uh, Senate bill that's passed the Senate. We have a House bill that uh, passed the House Transportation Committee but did not make it to the floor of the House. And they take quite different approaches. 
but it struck me that neither of them address one of the fundamental problems in transportation finance, and that is that we've been relying on gas taxes to fund most of our transportation for a long time, and it's never been a perfect user fee. My home state of Oregon was the first state to pass a gas tax in, in 1919 and dedicate it as a user fee to highways. And by 1931, every other state had done the same. In 1956, Congress did the same when it created the interstate highway system. But it's never been a perfect user fee, and it's becoming more and more imperfect all the time. Uh, one reason it's becoming imperfect is because cars have gotten a lot more fuel efficient, uh, about 40% more fuel efficient than they were 40 years ago. And that fuel efficiency means that when you buy gasoline, you're not paying as much uh, to use the roads as you used to pay. Counting fuel efficiency and inflation together, uh, when you uh, buy gasoline today, you're only paying one-third as much for every mile you drive as Americans paid in 1956, the year the interstate highway system was created. Uh, and that's not enough to keep the system going. Highways cost a lot to maintain as well as to build and uh, there just isn't enough to go around. That's only going to get worse. The Congressional Budget Office says that under the new CAFE standards that the Obama administration has created, uh, the highway revenues are going to be uh, declining because highway f or, or car fuel efficiencies are going to be growing faster than the rate of driving, and that means even if, even if the re we recover the re from the recession, people start driving more, uh, we're going to have a loss in revenue. So uh, gas taxes aren't cutting it. And then we got into the third problem, which is that uh, cars, some cars aren't are even going to be using gasoline anymore or other kinds of fu uh, fuel. They're going to be electrically powered, and we don't have a way of charging for that. And so they're going to essentially get to use the highways for free. Um, so one solution is to raise gas taxes, but it turns out the reason why the gas tax is an imperfect fee, or some of the reasons why it's an imperfect fee, won't be solved simply by raising gas taxes. Another problem uh, was raised when the I-35W bridge in Minneapolis collapsed a few years ago, and people started talking about an infrastructure crisis. They said it's going to cost a lot of money to rebuild the interstate highway system, to replace bridges and so on, and uh, the gas taxes were not covering the, those funds. Now, the truth is that highways really are not suffering an infrastructure crisis. The, it turns out that the bridge in, in Minneapolis that collapsed, collapsed not because of ma a maintenance failure, but because of a design flaw that could not have been detected during ordinary maintenance. So there was nothing that maintenance could have done to have fixed that. And it turns out that the number of bridges that are considered structurally deficient, that is, uh, in need of either serious maintenance or should be replaced, has been steadily declining since at least 1990, which is the earliest year for which I could find data. Uh, the number has fallen by more than 50% in that time, and uh, that, has, uh, that means we really don't have as much of an infrastructure crisis as people sometimes claim. However, the bridges that remain tend to be locally owned bridges, owned by cities and counties rather than by states or the federal government. Uh, and that's because the cities and counties do not collect, for the most part, do not collect gas taxes. They're collected by the federal government. They're collected by the states. Most states share some of their gas taxes with the cities and counties. But cities and counties are forced to come up with 
$30 billion a year of supplemental revenues, general funds, to help pay for uh, roads and bridges. And this is a bridge in, in my former hometown of Portland, Oregon, that is given us a score of two out of 100 in structural soundness uh, and should be replaced, and yet they don't have the money to replace it. They do have the money to build billions of dollars of light rail lines. They don't have money to replace the bridge. Uh, by other measures, uh, including the pavement roughness measure, which is an interna international index, highways are also improving. Hi highways are steadily getting uh, smoother and smoother because we have been maintaining them well. But again, uh, you can see that the highways that are doing the best are the interstate highways, which are state-owned, whereas the ar arterials that tend to have more locally owned roads are not as smooth, again suggesting that if you're not funding your roads out of user fees, you're likely to be uh, inadequate, have inadequate maintenance. So we have uh, poor maintenance, particularly of local roads, and we have another problem which isn't solved by raising gas taxes, and that is congestion. Congestion costs Americans, according to the Texas Transportation Institute, it costs travelers more than $100 billion a year. That doesn't count the cost to businesses, such as FedEx and UPS that have to own more trucks because it takes longer to deliver each, make each delivery. It doesn't cost, count the cost to emergency services, uh, which take longer to reach uh, uh, fires or uh, health problems or whatever. And so because of these costs, probably the total cost of congestion are around $200 billion a year. And this is a dead weight loss to society. It's not like we say, oh, uh, we've got a, the Pentagon buying hammers for $200. Well, somebody's making out some money from that $200. And yes, the taxpayers are losing, but at least somebody's making something off of it. In this case, nobody's getting anything out of congestion except for those anti-automobile environmentalists who uh, experience glee whenever they see other people stuck in traffic. I don't think that's worth $200 billion, so I don't think that's a... a justification for more congestion. It struck me recently that congestion is really two very different problems. And I want to explain this to you carefully so I can show you how uh, replacing the gas tax with a vehicle mile fee will help solve uh, the secondary problem of congestion and will save people hundreds of billions of dollars a year. <clears throat> Traffic uh, engineers have looked at how traffic flows and how congestion takes place. And what they find is, is that when at very low rates of traffic, you, people can drive, say, on a freeway at 65, 70 miles an hour. But as the traffic increases, uh, traffic slows down a little bit until you reach what I call the maximum capacity, maximum flow capacity of the road, which is for a freeway, typically, typically about 2,000 vehicles an hour. If you try to put more than 2,000 vehicles an hour on that road, on, on a lane of that road, the traffic slows down a lot. And when it slows down, suddenly the capacity also declines. So you notice the capacity here has uh, gone down to, say, 25 miles an hour, only 1,000 vehicles per hour. And so that makes roads the only resource I know where supply decreases 
when demand increases. You've got roads that theoretically could move 2,000 vehicles an hour, but because for a few minutes they exceeded that level, now the traffic flows at only 1,000 vehicles an hour. Somebody recently posted this video of congestion online. They have cars spaced equidistantly apart, moving around in a circle, but if one car slows down just a little bit, it forces everybody else to slow down, and you get patterns of congestion taking place uh, that you wouldn't expect if everybody could drive perfectly at the same, exactly the same speed. Of course, people don't drive exactly the same speed, and so you get what's called a breakdown in traffic, and those breakdowns lead to enormous congestion. Let me show you how this works by looking at congestion flows over the course of a day. Uh, we have here time of day, and then on the vertical axis, the number of vehicles per hour. Well, early in the morning, there's very few vehicles per hour going, so there's no congestion, and so people are going at 65, 70 miles an hour, whatever is the, the design speed of the highway. And then, as you approach the capacity of the road, traffic has to slow down a little bit. And uh, uh, I designate yellow at driving at only 50 miles an hour. Once you reach the capacity of the road, then suddenly uh, <clears throat> the traffic breaks down and you're down to traveling at 20 or 30 miles an hour and the flow capacity of the road is declined. So even though flows fall below the maximum capacity, you're stuck in traffic for hours until finally flows fall below the new limited capacity and then uh, you get free-flowing traffic again for a while until the afternoon when it all starts over again. And that means you've got hours and hours of traffic, even if only for a few minutes during that time, uh, traffic demand exceeded the maximum flow capacity of the road. Now, economists have long known that we can solve this problem with congestion pricing, with charging more for a road during the most congested periods of the day to shift some of those travelers to another time of day. Uh, Alan Posarski, who's here today, tells me that as much as two-thirds of the traffic on the highway during rush hour is not work-related traffic. So it would be easy for some of those vehicles to shift to a different time of day uh, with, the, with the congestion fee. The problem is, is that people don't like to pay twice. People say, I paid for the roads with my gas tax. Why should I have to pay a congestion toll on top of that? That's discriminatory against poor people. So it's been suggested by the Reason Foundation and others that what we need to do is build new lanes next to existing highways and charge for those lanes, build those new lanes with the tolls, charge for those lanes, and then people can take, have a choice of taking the, the free lanes and being stuck in traffic or taking the tolled lanes and getting there faster. That really doesn't solve the congestion problem. Here we see our flows. If you have hot lanes, the lanes where there's a few lanes that are told and the rest of them aren't, you can see for, in this graph, about six hours of the day, you have to charge maximum tolls to be able to keep the, the traffic free-flowing in the, in the told lanes when the other lanes are congested. If, however, you told all the lanes you'd only have to toll during the times of the day when the traffic was approaching the maximum flow capacity of the road. In this graph, only about three hours a day of the day instead of six hours of the day. So you'd have to toll during fewer hours. The tolls probably wouldn't have to be as much. 
and uh, you could essentially double the capacity of all the lanes in the highway during the red periods when, uh, when the capacity goes uh, above that. This is a problem that can't be solved simply by raising gas taxes. And as long as people are going to say, I don't want to pay a gas tax and a toll, it can't be solved that way either. So I propose to get rid of gas taxes completely and replace them completely with mile per mile tolls. Uh, and uh, those tolls would be fixed on a per mile basis if you're driving on uncongested roads, and they would be variable on congested roads. Now, how would this work? My home state of Oregon did an experiment a few years ago where they put GPS devices in uh, several hundred cars, and the GPS devices kept track of where people went. If they went in certain zones, they paid a certain rate. If they went in other zones, they paid another rate. If they left the state, they paid zero. And then they would go to special gasoline pumps that were designed by the state when the gasoline uh, uh, nozzle was inserted in your car, your, car, your GPS would send a signal to the gas pump telling it how much money you owe. It would not tell your car where you went. It would not tell you, your car or the gas pump when you went there. It would only say how much money you owed. And it might be broken down. You might owe this much to the city for driving on streets. You might owe this much for the county to, for driving on county roads. And you might owe this much to the state for driving on state highways. And if there's any private roads nearby, like the Dulles Parkway, you might owe that much to them. Uh, this way, there would be no invasion of privacy because no data are transferred other than the actual amount you owe. Now, the state of Oregon noted that there's a trade-off between privacy and auditability. If your GPS told the state everything about when and where you went everywhere, and then they told you, you owe us $1,000, you could say, no, just look at this. I didn't drive in the places you're saying I'm driving. I only owed you $100 or $5 or whatever. At the other extreme, you could have absolute privacy but no ability to audit. So if the gas pump says you owe $1,000, tough luck. You don't have any way to challenge that. I propose that your GPS or whatever is in your car that's recording where you're going keeps all the information about when and where you've been there. It transmits the price to the gas pump or whatever is the uh, uh, receiver. And if you have an objection to it, if you think that you're being cheated, you can go and, and use the data that's in your GPS to correct that. Once you're satisfied with it, you can push a button and erase those data so that nobody could ever access them again. Now, it doesn't have to be a special GPS for your car. It could be an ordinary transponder like the Fast Track or Easy Pass transponders that are used for toll roads here. Uh, in Oregon, uh, all trucks carry transponders because they use them for the weight mile taxes. Uh, and you could just use a smartphone. Most smartphones now are GPS capable, so you could just use your smartphone and pay for it that way. So there's a lot of ways of working it out but we can do it in a way that preserves privacy. We can do it in a way that allows local governments to collect the funds they need to maintain the roads and, and build new roads. We can do it in a way that allows a relief from congestion. There would be some other side benefits as well. For one thing, people are concerned about urban sprawl, and there's a concern that suburbanites are having their transportation subsidized uh, by urbanites. And the solution to that so far 
has been for many cities to draw urban growth boundaries around themselves to limit the ability for people to move into the suburbs. In Oregon, for example, it's 98% of the state is zoned rural and you're not allowed to build a house in rural areas unless you own 80 acres, you actually farm it, and you actually earn $80,000 a year farming it. The problem with that is that it creates huge unintended consequences. Oregon housing prices have quadrupled, uh, housing is no longer affordable to a lot of people. Uh, it's created huge problems for businesses as well because land prices have gone way up. Uh, studies have shown that simply using congestion pricing and, and vehicle mile pricing, we could take care of all the problems with urban sprawl, all the, the, uh, the supposed externalities with urban sprawl much more efficiently without all the side costs involved in using urban growth boundaries. <clears throat> Uh, this system would also create a, com a competitive system. Most cities, as I noted, have city streets, county roads, uh, state roads. The, uh, this is a map of Houston. There's all kinds of different roads on there. Houston has several county toll road authorities, which are separate from the county road authorities. The toll road authorities build roads. They pay for the roads exclusively with tolls. They're pretty independent of... Uh, the, the counties themselves, because they're essentially their own entity. They make their own money, they spend their own money, they don't have to get approval from anyone to do it. So they're almost like a private toll road authority. And they built some, some great roads. This is the Fort Bend Parkway. It costs $10 million a mile to build. That's a four-lane road for $10 million, meaning $2.5 million a lane mile. One lane carries about five times as many people as a typical light rail line that costs $50 million a mile. And some light rail lines are now costing over $200 million a mile. So you can see this is a very efficient way. And you've got, uh, since you have competing road networks here, they have an incentive to be as efficient as they can so they can attract your tolls as opposed to you deciding to go somewhere else because uh, their tolls are too expensive. It's interesting to me that we have some such strong differences in the private sector versus the public sector as far as innovation goes. A few years ago, my Macintosh looked like this on the back. And then I got an upgrade. And you can see all of the ports are different from the two different versions, except for the, uh, the, the speaker port. Every other port is different. And now I have a Macintosh like this. And again, they're all different. Uh, and that's because the private sector innovates really fast the new innovations are faster, they're better, they're cheaper, and they give people incentives to, to follow that innovation. By comparison, uh, the, <clears throat> in transportation, 125 years ago, we saw the beginnings of the streetcar system in America. Uh, and today, we're seeing cities all over the country saying, we want to have 21st century technology, let's build some streetcars. Their idea is... The most innovative idea they can think of today is to build a 125-year-old system. Now, I wasn't going to show these slides today, but uh, uh, somebody, uh, Google, invited some people here at Cato to ride in their Google self-driving car uh, yesterday. And we took these pictures yesterday. That's David Bose and I uh, looking at the self-driving car. Uh, the car, uh, this is a monitor they have inside the car. It keeps track of everything around it. All these little white squares are pedestrians. The bigger boxes are vehicles. Uh, the, the, he's pointing to a stoplight that uh, the car is seeing. The car can registers the, the speed limit and so on and so forth. 
The self-driving car is technologically feasible, and if it doesn't happen soon, it's going to be because government gets in the way. Uh, I'm really excited that Google is going out on a limb and working on this. I think they think they're going to be able to sell the software because they don't think the auto manufacturers are going to be have the have the daring to uh, to uh, do self-driving cars. This is an idea that's been around for a long time. I found this 1961 newspaper article from the Chicago Tribune that said, by 1964, we'll have 100 miles of self-driving car highways in this country. And by 1975, all major highways will have self-driving capabilities. Um, that obviously didn't happen, but I think it will happen soon. And with that kind of technological change, uh, we're going to see a lot of differences happening in our uh, uh, highway system and financial system. There's a lot of resistance to raising gas taxes, but if we substitute gas taxes with vehicle mile fees, we can, uh, I think, solve all of these problems cheaply. There are three different actors, three different ways of going about this. One is that Congress could simp simply eliminate the federal gas tax and give states some kind of incentive to shift their gas taxes to VMT fees. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Another is the states could just start shifting themselves. And if they do that, I think they need to work together. And one vehicle for that would be the American Association of State and Highway and Transportation Officials to coordinate so that when I drive my Oregon car into Michigan or the District of Columbia or wherever, that the, the system that's being used in Oregon is compatible with other systems. Doing all that will relieve congestion, solve potholes, make sure that we build more highways when we need them, uh, uh, reduce urban sprawl, and uh, this is uh, Scott Garrett who wants to devolve federal highway transportation funding to the states. This, an, another side effect is devolution. So my paper, I think you should all have copies of it. Uh, I'll be glad to answer questions after the other two speakers. I also, as uh, Michael mentioned, have a book called Gridlock, uh, and I hope there's some copies outside in case you want to take a look at that. Thank you very much. Thank you, and there are copies of Randall's book outside uh, for anybody who's looking for them. And Adrian, you're up next. Thank you. Thanks, Randall. The, uh, this morning, the thanks, to the, thanks to the Twitterverse, I came across a story uh, from the island of Kauai, which is one of the Hawaiian islands. It's the one actually my family's lived on for much of my life, and I've spent as much of my life there as I could pull off. Um, and there's a, a beach at, at one end of the island that's pretty much just a local's beach because it's at the end of a long old cane road, and uh, there's not a lot of facilities there. So it's not a tourist beach. It's a local's beach. And a year ago, we had, the island experienced a lot of storms, and the road was essentially destroyed. People said we'd like to have the road rebuilt because it's a very popular beach with the locals, and the government said, okay, and they went out and took a look, and they came back, and they said, well, here's the bad news. It's, it's a four million two-year project, uh, partly because we can't start it right away because we have other priorities and everything, and so uh, that's, that's the way it is, and, and a lot of folks were not very happy with that, so a few of them put their heads together, and uh, then they put their heads together a few more people, and... Uh, a few weeks ago, they went out, and in eight days, they rebuilt the road by themselves. 
So four million two-year two project uh, became an eight-day private volunteer project like that. Uh, and the response generally from the population has been, well, okay, that's pretty much proof that everything the government says about transportation is a big fat lie. Uh, you know, we believe nothing you say about all the other roads projects that you have going and how much they cost. And we're all thinking, you know, if volunteers can do this project, $4 million project in eight days, how many of these other projects that you're spending, you know, 10, 20, 30 million on could actually be done for like a million or two million uh, if we let somebody else do it instead? So very instructive, uh, instructive little story about how dysfunctional the system is and how upset people are that there's so little transparency. I mean, it took something like this for people to even realize how bogus those numbers are. I'm sure people are sort of always mildly skeptical about government costs, but I don't think anybody would have put uh, the reality anywhere on that kind of scale. Uh, so it's one of the challenges we have in transportation is that nobody knows what they pay. The average person, uh, actually I was involved in a project with the Transportation Research Board a couple years ago where we had all these university students go out and do man-on-the-street interviews with people about how much do you pay for transportation. And a very small percentage of people were like even in the ballpark of reality of how much they pay. So the system's very opaque. Nobody knows really how much they pay in gas taxes. They don't know how much they pay in tire taxes. Most people kind of know their vehicle registration fees and maybe their, their uh, vehicle taxes. Uh, but there are many other fees, they pay, fees and taxes they pay that they're not really aware of. And so they don't know what's going in, and they don't know how much things are costing, and it's, it, it's all sort of a mystery. So one of the virtues of what Randall is talking about uh, would be bringing a lot of uh, sunshine into that <coughs> process. In 2008, I want to say, um, uh, I was appointed uh, by Congress to a commission. They had created a commission in the last transportation bill. They created two commissions, actually. Um, the one I was appointed to is called the Finance Commission, and it was essentially had the challenge. Congress said, hey, think about how we, what's the best way to pay for transportation over the next 50 years, you know? Yeah, we're interested in, like, what we should be doing right now, but the main charge of the commission is to think about what's, what's happening in transportation technology and finance and what do we do in the long run. And, you know, I'm the only, I was the only, you know, remotely, free market, let alone libertarian person on the commission. Uh, so it was an interesting, uh, it was an interesting bunch. We had a, a whole crew of very prominent uh, uh, Democrat transportation people. Uh, I had the handful of Republican appointees were like local folks from kind of the hinterland. Uh, they were all great on the commission because they were a little more grounded in like reality in Des Moines and, and North Dakota and places like that. But in terms of federal transportation finance, they didn't know a lot. So uh, I didn't think we would get anywhere, and I was amazed after, you know, two years of work that we were unanimous in saying we've looked at every means of funding transportation that anybody, any of us could think of and the hundreds of people who came and spoke to the commission could suggest to us, and it's blindingly obvious that the only really functional, sustainable, effective, efficient uh, by the criteria we set and by what I think are logical criteria, the only thing that works in the long run is charging some kind of mileage-based user fee. Uh, and that shouldn't be that surprising because let's just, you know, just step back a second and say, well, wait a minute. If the roads were private, if this was just a, a market, how would we pay for the roads? 
Well, I'll tell you, we'd pay with a mileage-based user fee is how we'd pay. Uh, this is how toll roads work. Toll roads, private toll roads, privately managed toll roads or privately owned toll roads, look at how much is the road cost, how much do we need to operate the thing, you know, what's the, mar what's the market gonna bear, and that's the price we charge. Uh, now that gets monkeyed around with a lot by, by government regulation, but the upshot is they're trying to figure out what the same market price that we pay for every other network. How do you pay for telecoms? Okay, you pay a fee that's based on use. How do you pay for electricity, for water, wastewater, internet, okay? I mean, not all of it's sort of variable charges, but that's because they sim the market simplifies a lot of those things. Uh, but they certainly don't use indirect hidden charges scattered throughout uh, the, the goods so that you're having to pay for the cell phone towers partly by a, a fee that's attached to the little rubber cover you buy to put on your phone or anything ridiculous like that, which is exactly what we do in transportation. So uh, if, if that's how the private sector would do it, I think the challenge is how do we, how do we think about a system like that uh, where we're not entirely in the private sector? I think you know the evolution of roads goes that way. Randall talked about these these toll road authorities that are, that are almost uh, fully independent private organizations. There's a lot of different models like that out there. Um, and, I, and it's easy to imagine at least the end state of where the roads are privatized and they could be for-profit companies, they could be non-profits, they could be quasi-governmental organizations of various stripes, but they're all no longer sort of monopoly government entities and yeah because they're not fully competitive except in urban areas you might have some kind of regulation uh, hopefully very enlightened regulation akin to some of the nations that do a better job with electricity uh, regulation than the United States does uh, but the incentives would be radically different you would have a lot of competition in urban areas among owners of roads and these kind of pricing systems would just be a no-brainer but what we're up against is, right now it is a government monopoly, and the implementation of this kind of system is going to come from the government. Uh, and so that raises a lot of issues. Uh, uh, Randall talked about some of them. Um, I think, you know, privacy is the big one. I've been talking about this for years now, and that's obvious. That's the issue that seems to come up the most. Uh, it's the issue that concerns me the most. Um, uh, there's many, many different ways to skin this cat. I think one of the problems I run into when I talk to people about uh, privacy issue is everybody has in their mind, oh, okay, I know how this would work. It would be a GPS system, you know, da-da-da. No, there's, there's, there's at, right now, there's at least five or six completely different technological approaches to doing this kind of, of pricing. And all of them have radically different implications for the exchange of information that's going to occur and therefore for your privacy, which is all about that exchange of information. There's really low-tech stuff that essentially relies on your odometer and has no information exchanged whatsoever, no information even available other than how many miles you drive. And then there's really sort of high-end uh, ones that can finally parse everywhere you've been and when you've been there and everything. And the question with those kind of systems is, where is that data going to reside? If it resides on my computer in my car and I can control the flow of it, that's one thing. If it resides on the government database and they get to say whether they delete it or not, that's a whole other kettle of fish. Uh, so 
the structure matters. Um, so the question's not whether you can have mileage-based charging and solve privacy problems. The question is, how do you implement this thing in a way that protects people's privacy? And I think a big part of it is choice. Some people would like the high-tech system and not have privacy issues. Some people would want the low-tech system and have complete privacy. Uh, that spectrum Randall had up there, I think, should actually be a spectrum of choices that people are given. Uh, and that tends to be the way uh, most, most of the evolving uh, uh, systems out there uh, are, are reaching for. So rather than trying to offer one silver bullet, they're, they're offering a multiplicity of choices. Um, there's also, uh, I think, another, I could go a great length about pros and cons about this. I just wanted to pick out a couple. Uh, the cost is, is an issue. Um, the gas tax, for all its great failings, uh, is really pretty darn efficient. It's like a penny on the dollar to collect in the system that we have right now. It's very hard to come up with a system for charging people that's that cheap. Uh, most of the, there's been several pretty rigorous attempts to try to figure out how much it would cost to charge by the mile using various different technologies. And the, the rosiest scenario I've seen so far comes out to six to eight cents for on the dollar, so six to eight times as costly to collect as the gas tax. Uh, that's no trivial challenge. Uh, uh, it's not trivial because none of us want to see any payment mechanism we have get more of it get consumed by overhead. And it's a, you know, it's a problem for the government folks looking to do this because uh, if, if it's going to cost that much more to collect, they're going to have to charge that much more, and that's going to be that much more unpopular. And, and so that's, that's something that it, in, where we're still in search of a solution. Um, in terms of searching for solutions, let me just close out by pointing out some of what's going on out there. One thing is, is there's, there's an organization called the Mileage Based User Fee Alliance that's about two years old now, a year and a half old. Uh, it's just a, a coalition uh, of reasons a member, uh, as are a number of state DOTs, a number of private companies, and uh, some universities and so forth. And it's a uh, uh, it's, it's just a coalition of folks who are working on this issue basically designed to try to, you know, be the, the place where people can get information about what's going on out there. Um, there are states doing various kinds of pilot projects. Oregon did the first really big attention-getting pilot project on this uh, and is building actually uh, on uh, attempting to expand on that and do some more. Uh, Minnesota has begun a pilot uh, project on this. Nevada is uh, trying to hammer out the final details of one. Colorado has just begun figuring out how they are going to do one. The I-95 Corridor Coalition, a couple of the states there are looking at uh, doing a pilot project that probably wouldn't get started for another year, year and a half, but they're scoping that out right now. So. Right now, you have several experiments going on, and in the next couple of years, you're going to see several more experiments on, going on. So there's, all of them are trying to figure out how do we solve the cost problem? How do we protect people's privacy? How do we make this thing work in a way that is acceptable to everyone involved? And to me, it's fascinating because it's a chance for me to get involved and for others to get involved and try to steer this thing in a more market-oriented, real pricing direction and not a tax that's got the name price stuck on it, which is certainly the way it could be structured. So it's an evolution that I think has to happen if we're going to pay for transportation like we would pay for other market goods, and if we're going to evolve the transportation system in that direction. And so I think we're making some progress. Thank you.
Ron, if you'd finish this up. Sure. Thank you, Michael. Uh, just let me uh, add to your uh, introduction of me is that I'm no longer with the Heritage Foundation. I retired in early February. Uh, so I now uh, list myself as associated with the uh, Maryland Public Policy Institute as an adjunct fellow. Uh, in reality, I would have to list retired, and people would expect me to come up and talk about my golf game or something, or gardening. <coughs> Let me also add is that this morning I was, and I confess, I was um, on federally funded hiking, hiking trail in Fredericksburg, Virginia with my dog, uh, but I was reprimanded and given a warning by the animal control officer because so, my dog was not on a leash, so I was enjoying wasteful federal spending, but I was doing it in a freedom-loving way. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, now, what, how do I get mine up here? So, Click. There we go. Okay. And then I just Click. do this. Okay. Uh, there we go. Okay. All right. <coughs> um, so anyway, here I am at Cato. We know that. Uh, I, what I do is I have up there is my uh, a quote from my favorite uh, transportation economist, who, as many of you know, was a one of America's most popular humorists. And this is really the essence of my presentation, is that uh, and what, what he observed at a time when we don't even, when the automobile is just getting going, is that the public sector, which produces the roads, can't really keep up with, this, with, with the demand that people want. And the private sector, which produces the vehicles that are on them, uh, does quite well in, uh, in, in, in producing the, the vehicles that people use. Uh, on them, and so in fact, anything. Some people are friends from the environmental movement might argue that uh, we produce too many cars. So, but on the issue of funding, which we were talking about, I, you just add or in, in summary, I tend to be agnostic at this point about whether we need more money or not. Uh, in large part, uh, because I have no confidence that the existing system in any state or federal government would wisely spend it. In, in many respects, as you watch how Washington deals with your federal federal transportation money. You have the sense of curing an addict by giving him more money, <laughs> which is not likely to be very successful. Um, and, and the other thing, is, as Randall uh, noted, is that notwithstanding uh, the, the, uh, the common belief that our infrastructure is crumbling, it's falling apart, getting worse by the day, in fact, since 1990, virtually every <coughs> measure of, of road performance and, and bridge uh, safety and stability and sustainability has improved and has improved quite substantially, and, and those numbers come from the federal government, uh, which is surprising to hear people from the federal government saying quite the opposite. Uh, and, uh, and finally, uh, none of the transportation programs, either at the state or federal level, have uh, goals that they're oriented on. They're just sort of there kind of spending money and accommodating as many people as they can. Uh, congestion mitigation uh, should be a prime goal, and it seldom is. And in fact, there are other places that actually try to suppress congestion mitigation. Uh, on, on spending the money uh, effectively, you know, I calculate that 65% of federal surface federal transportation money uh, uh, only go does, goes to the general purpose uh, motorist. 20% uh, goes to transit, yet less than 2% of the nation people nationwide use transit. Uh, and in some states, uh, of the money is 40 to 50% transit. Uh, Maryland uh, is a case in point. So the more we motorists pay, the more it's just going to leak off into things that are of no benefit to us at all, in including congestion mitigation, which we really want. Um, the, um, <laughs> so I would say, uh, based on the public perception and the public attitude, is we might be in a, in a transportation tax revolt now. Uh, 
There's been no increase uh, in the federal transportation uh, fuel tax uh, rate since 1993. Uh, <clears throat> nobody even seriously raises it now. It has no support among Democrats or Republicans or the White House. Uh, when uh, Mr. LaHood, early in the administration, said he's in favor of the BMT, the White House had, within 24 hours, uh, issued a correction saying we are not in favor of any increase in any, any fuel tax or driving-related tax uh, <coughs> at this time. And they, have, uh, and they have pretty much stuck by that. And so the big struggle in Congress now is how do we even continue to spend what we've been spending in the past, given that revenues are falling, and that's why the reauthorization bill is, is, is in its third year of, uh, of, uh, of, of non-renewal, so, um, or, or non-reauthorization. <coughs> so um, those are uh, the basic problems that we're confronting with. I think there's a good reason for, uh, for, the, for, the, for the public's perception on this, and it's disinterest in it. Uh, chiefly, I just don't think they have confidence in their public officials, whether they're at the state level or at the federal level, to alleviate any of the problems they see, which are primarily congestion. Uh, and it's very difficult to get people enthusiastic about paying more for something if they think they've been paying more for something in the past and they're not getting the level of services that they feel uh, uh, they deserve. <laughs> and so why give more money uh, to them, particularly if there's a common perception that, in fact, the money may be wasted on, on very costly projects uh, in this area like the Dulles Rail, uh, which the which the which the Dulles Rail reports to the Federal Transportation <laughs> Administration admit will have no impact on congestion mitigation and no improvement on on the environment, <laughs> but it is one of the greatest real estate deals going. People perceive that and say, "Why should I be funding that?" <laughs> um, we also see, as we look at the at the federal program and the people that are involved in it, it's becoming increasingly <clears throat> anti-car, increasingly Washington-centric. Uh, and now becoming increasingly partisan. Uh, if you've looked at, you know, as, as, if you're following transportation, you know that at the moment <coughs> the, the House and Senate are meeting for a conference, and if you look at the House conferees that have been appointed, <coughs> they've been sort of the, the far left in, on the Democrats and, and the more conservative uh, among the Republicans. And this is sort of a group of people that are sort of designed not to come to an agreement. Uh, so, again, this is just going to drag on and on and on, and I think if we're lucky, we'll renew the safety loo for another couple of months or a year or so and try to deal with this after the election when we see whether the House or Senate and, or the presidency and the White House are rebalanced. Um, so I, I have no optimism that the public sector is going to go. Now, uh, and I've had no illusions about this for some time. Uh, I became a big supporter uh, in, in, in the late 1990s of the Mac-Kasich turnback program. Uh, they essentially gave up on the federal program back then. <coughs> they came up with something called the Transportation Empowerment Act, which would have phased out the federal fuel tax over a period of five years, allowing that as the federal fuel tax declines, that states would increase their gas tax so that everybody would be held harmless and there wouldn't be any, any loss in money. It's just that the money would no longer be spent by Washington under Washington's direction, but the states would have the ability to spend it uh, on their own priorities, which certainly differ from state to state. <coughs> um, that, those, that legislation has been reintroduced every, ever since then, but uh, uh, regrettably, uh, it's uh, probably seen less enthusiasm today than it did in the past. Back when Mack and Kasich introduced it, about 20 state DOTs formally endorsed it. Uh, I'm f finding it very difficult to find any states willing to endorse it. Uh, 
And uh, the, there have been several uh, variants of this. Uh, the Republican Study Committee, uh, the conservative group of, of Republicans of the House, have been very strong in favor of this, have their own legislation. It is one of their key issues. Yet of the 177 uh, members of the Republican Study Committee, uh, only about 20 of them have endorsed this legislation. So I'm not real optimistic that it's going uh, anywhere soon, but we have to keep plugging away on it. At least, you know, that's what I intend to do. So, okay, did that change or no? There we go. Okay. So the essence of the problem, really, going back to uh, uh, Will Rogers, is that <laughs> what we have is a public-private partnership to begin with. <laughs> The private sector provides most of the rolling stock, provides the cars, the buses, the trucks, the trains, and federal government or state governments and local governments provide the infrastructure, whether it's airports, air traffic control, or the roads. <coughs> and what we have is in the private sector, <coughs> all the transportation services and products are in abundant supply <coughs> and very responsive to public needs and changes in public taste, whereas in the public sector, uh, the supply of infrastructure is often deficient in the sense that it's below the capacity that people currently want to use. Uh, <clears throat> the private sector does provide much of the nation's infrastructure, just not much in the, the transportation area, except for freight, freight railroads, which are a big success story. They're largely unsubsidized, they're very profitable, and they move a, a huge volume of freight over an infrastructure that really hasn't changed very much in size since then. Other infrastructure includes things like apartment buildings, shopping centers, office buildings, power supply, farms, uh, food processing, all of our factories. And again, uh, we have plenty of these, and they can produce in abundance. Uh, so we're basically back to, you know, how do we get, get the put the public sector more onto a, uh, onto a market-based system to make it more responsive. Uh, some people talk about privatization. I'm not sure that people are ready for that yet, but we have to figure out how can we add market incentives into, into the system uh, to make it more responsive and, and more uh, willing to, more prepared to serve the interests of the people. Uh, and the, the, I think all of us have a pretty good understanding if you're following it just exactly what some of the problems are with being in the public sector. For one, it's really not responsive to needs, it's more responsive to macroeconomic policy issues. So transportation spending now that people are discussing or proposing has nothing to do with a particular goal. It has to do with trade-offs between other programs and how much of a deficit we can get away with and whether it will stimulate the economy or create, create jobs, but nothing about whether it will relieve congestion. Uh, <coughs> federal and state transportation programs are similar. At a time like now, when, when everybody's <laughs> fighting to, uh, to get it, uh, when, when budgets are limited because tax revenue's down and, and human needs are up because of unemployment, uh, transportation tends to lose out because it's not a high priority among people. It's not a high priority about politicians. I think the last three presidential races, neither candidate said a thing, single thing about transportation, not at all except maybe indirectly as it relates to the environment or housing or something like that. But nobody had a transportation plan, and, and you don't see at, at, at the congressional or senatorial level uh, that they do. Uh, however, many governors will run on transportation. Bob McDonnell, I think his highest priority, was, uh, was reforming Virginia transportation. He made bold promises that he kept. Uh, and I think that's typical of governors, which, again, from my perspective, is why we need to shift transportation policy, transportation resources, transportation decision-making, 
down to the level of government that's genuinely interested in it and capable of making the effective decisions on resource allocation for the interest of their constituents. Other problems with the federal program or any public program is it tends to get hobbled by politics. Surprise, surprise. But we see the growing influence of what I call stakeholders, which are simply tax users who, through successful lobbying or something or the other, have appended themselves like barnacles to the federal transportation program. So this is why only 60% of the money, by my calculation, goes toward general purpose roads because you have special interests like the hiking people, the bicycling people, who've managed to get a program in there. And once you get a program in there, it stays there forever. We have more diversions. We're seeing more federal micromanagement efforts to take decisions that have been lodged at the state more into the federal level, putting things on competitive competition or competitive grants, which sounds really great, but the grants are going to be awarded in Washington, not at the state. So I worry about this. And you can look at just sort of where the divergence in plans and the basic needs is that what you see is some in the House have been trying to have transportation stay within its funding level. So we only spend what we're raising. So they proposed a cut of over $30 billion between 2011 and 2012. Now, we're all in favor of a limited government, and maybe that's what we need right now. But again, that has no connection to what we're looking for in transportation goals, which is why we simply need to get transportation out of the system and into something that's more beneficial and better serves the interests of the people who are paying the freight for this. So again, we like to see that things go back to the states. But we recognize that it's not likely to see any increase in taxes. So where are we going to find the resources to do this? Well, I think what we do want to do is start focusing on the fact that most of the transportation assets are owned at the state level. And so states are rich in physical assets, very rich in physical assets, but poor in cash. And so the struggle is and the question is, how do we monetize those assets that we have in order to draw better services out of them and more effectively allocate them among competing uses? And this is not unique to the public sector. Some of the very costly infrastructures that are free, like Google, Yahoo, LinkedIn, Facebook, are all free to the user. But these are costly physical capitals and costly to operate. So the business model for all these things, and we're seeing this with Facebook now coming out as an IPO, is how do we monetize this? And through advertisements, through charging people, and this is the big struggle that they confront and the struggle that we confront at the federal level. And this is where we need to work with it. And I think that there are, we need to, basically I have to wrap it up now, coming near the end, but I think we need to figure out clever ways to turn the physical asset into different streams of cash, whether it's through tolls or congestion pricing. We need to step in that direction. We need also to attract more capital from the private sector. We have been very successful with public-private partnerships in a couple of parts of the country, notably Virginia and Texas, 
where huge volumes of money have come in uh, to provide vital transportation services where there is a lot of congestion. Uh, we're in favor of those. I'm in favor of those. I think everybody in the panel is in favor of them. The problem is that they are very difficult to put together and amenable only to those transportation projects that can be demonstrated to provide a sustainable, reliable revenue stream to interest the private sector. And not every transportation project will do that. I think we never, never really talk much about uh, transit, but um, uh, the transit area is a, is a huge black hole for spending. Costs an enormous amount of money, serves very little people. <coughs> and uh, some market solutions there to try to figure out how to reduce costs, whether to do it through competitive contracting, uh, in, um, as it's being done in Europe, or through uh, simply more competition at the local level with, by allowing uh, private carriers to come into the, the business. So in the end, what we need to do is figure out how to market, uh, uh, begin to market, mimic market processes uh, with that. And let me just sort of wrap up with Will Rogers. I started with Will Rogers, and this is for, uh, for uh, Randall, who used the uh, trolleys and streetcars. But even in 1923, and this is an actual quote, this is not an attributed to Will Rogers says, here are a few rules. He was talking about how he was going to improve transportation, and he had a couple of things, and a lot of them were funny and humorous. But he says, and this is telling, he says, eliminate the streetcars from the streets because they only get in people's way who are trying to hurry home. Anyway, thank you. Well, thank you very much. And uh, our panelists are happy to take some questions. Uh, we have some microphones going around. I, I ask you to wait until you're called on until the mi and then until the microphone gets to you to make your question a question rather than a speech. And if you uh, could identify yourself and what organization you're with, that would also be appreciated. This is all going out. We're live streaming uh, all of our forums here. And we want to make sure that everybody picks up on this. So let's start right over here. Uh, my, na <clears throat> my name is Gabriel Roth. Uh, I'm the author of the Cato paper, How to Liberate the Roads. Uh, came out uh, a few years ago. Uh, I'd like, first of all, to thank the speakers very much for what I think are ex really excellent presentations, and also to congratulate the Cato Institute uh, on this new hall. This is the first time that I've been here. And uh, it's re uh, really astonishing, the uh, effects and the, uh, uh, I think the facilities almost match the quality of the people who are here. Uh, my question to the panel is, what do you think should be done about the transportation bill now being negotiated uh, in Congress? Uh, do people think that uh, the do they hope for the negotiations to succeed? And if so, in what uh, way? Or would they prefer them to be deferred to another Congress? Um, uh, why don't we just go right down the list? Uh, Randall, you can start. We'll go right this way. Well, I think that <clears throat> the Senate bill is so bad and the House lacks credibility because it wasn't able to pass a bill and even that bill didn't satisfy fiscal conservatives. I think our only hope is that the, the conference committee fails and that we go on to next year and maybe have a better Congress to pass a more uh, fiscally conservative bill. 
Uh, I agree, but I think the risk is that the, is the question is how does the Congress, how does the conference fail? If the conference fails by simply saying we can't come to an agreement, so let's extend, extend safety lieu, then I think we're in better shape. Uh, even though I have long argued that safety lieu is one of the worst pieces of legislation ever enacted, times change and you have to change with them. <laughs> and so, uh, but um, the, the worst thing that could happen is that this could be contrived and, and turn into a showdown. Uh, the Senate could simply say, along with the president, nope, we're going to have a bill. And you have to sit there, and we'll let it expire, and you, the Republicans in the House, are simply going to shut down the government because of, and you don't even have a plan. You're shutting down the, the government, and you have no plan at all. So that kind of brinksmanship, which happened over the debt limit, happened under FAA reauthorization, ha has led to a kind of a diminished position for the Republicans. In the eyes of the public, they were or the conservatives, let's say. In the eyes of the public, they were the ones that, that were viewed as losing. I'm afraid, or I'm, well, let's say I'm hoping, that that doesn't happen this time. But I'm you know, a little bit concerned that the Republicans agreed to go to conference when they had no bill to fight for. So essentially, what you're going to get is is, is if it comes, something comes out that isn't a, an extension, it's going to be the Senate bill slightly modified. Okay, so yeah, I would I rather be clubbed in the head or kicked in the groin is kind of the question you're asking, you know, or would the uh, I, I guess I, I agree with with Ron's assessment of like the likely paths. Uh, and uh, for how how conference might uh, might go, um, and uh, not neither is a very very happy choice, all things considered. Uh, on the other hand, things you know basically the federal transportation is so messed up right now. I mean, how much more harm can they really do? Uh, you know, in a conference, I mean, the, if they actually passed a unanimous uh, uh, bipartisan bill, it could be a nightmare. But I think at this point, uh, the, it, they're less likely to pass anything that's very dramatic. And so uh, it's mostly political consequences rather than consequences for, for transportation. Thank you. Mark Scribner, CEI. Um, and this kind of goes to Gabriel's point, um, but I would like to note first that I think it is a little bit different with this conference committee in terms of like the debt ceiling debate in that the House Republicans have passed the 10th extension to safety lieu and that's what they went into conference with. So I think they bought themselves maybe an insurance policy mm -hmm. to some degree. But um, I guess my question is, uh, if the Republicans say we get a better conference and we have more fiscal conservatives who can kind of drive this thing, what we saw the last time with H.R. 7 was the Re House Republican leadership insisting that transportation reauthorization needed to have an energy title to it. Uh, and that's where a lot of the automatic opposition sprung up. So do you all think that Republicans can uh, get it together and focus on transportation, or are we still going to keep on seeing keystone and uh, offshore drilling thrown into a reauthorization bill? Anybody? Well, you know, they, they have backed off in odd ways. When I say they, the Republicans have backed off in odd ways before. You know, I, I put the Ryan budget up there. The Ryan, Ryan budget was quietly pushed off the table. Everybody talks about it. They bring Paul Ryan out. But those numbers were, were essentially altered uh, obliquely, uh, first, in the, first in the debt limit. 
and then doing a, uh, I think, in a, a reauthoring. I'm, I'm, I'm getting, maybe getting some of these things confused, but they did a, a an extension of the of of, of the existing bill uh, on a voice vote um, that 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 members were given like an, an hour's notice on. And weren't even, and, and the leadership was vague on why they were coming to the floor. But you better be there and vote for it, kind of thing. <laughs> but it's a voice vote, so you're, you know, you don't have to worry about your constituents. Okay, so, um, so it, it, they they had plenty of opportunities to stick with with something better, and and at the last minute have blinked, and so there's a lot of blinking, and I'm just afraid that 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 they don't blink so much this time around. But again. The record for the year has not been very good. Yeah, I just I just add, look, the Republican leadership's not fiscally conservative. Uh, the fiscally conservative members have have had some ability to grapple with them a few times, and 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 that's where it stands. So, yeah, I mean, they don't even the leadership doesn't even start thinking about the transportation bill as a transportation. They could care less about transportation. What they care about is politics and energy is jobs and that's the election is an election year it's all that dynamic so i think it, to to hope that they'll start thinking about transportation no that's they're not that's doesn't interest them in any way shape or form yeah david beer cei mr atul i was wondering how you would phase in your um your program, whether or not you would just mandate immediately that everyone have these GPS in their car, or how you could do it without uh, such a mandate? Well, the paper that I wrote says there's two ways of doing it. The Oregon proposal was to phase it in by having all new cars mandatory have the GPSs or whatever as the device, and then other people could do it optionally and over a 20-year period, eventually, all car, virtually all cars on the road would be replaced. I, however, say that the benefits of a rapid uh, uh, transition outweigh the costs. The benefits being that you would immediately end all that congestion. You'd immediately save local governments the $30 billion a year. You'd immediately provide funds to maintain all, lo- all roads and highways. And so I, I just said, let's, let's do it overnight. Let's say by January 1st, 2014, all, well, a particular state will stop charging all gas taxes and we'll start charging vehicle mile fees on, in that state. That would mean that the state would have to replace all, uh, if, in, in the Oregon system, the, the pumps would have to be modified. And they estimated it would cost about $33 million to modify all the pumps in Oregon, which was pretty cheap. They estimated the cost per car could probably uh, get down to about $50. Uh, so some people might need some assistance with that, but most people could be able to afford that. Okay. Last question is right here. Thank you. Uh, I live in Northern Virginia. Two-part question to Mr. Utt. When you talk about public-private partnerships, as Virginia is doing with the Dulles Toll Road, how do you sell to taxpayers this idea that the taxpayers are paying for the road but the tolls are going to the private company. And the second part of the question is to all of you or anyone who wants to address this. Now that earmarks have become sort of um, have not there, how do you get money for transportation for various localities? Well, I, I think there are two 
uh, I'm not sure what Dulles Toll Road, the, the, the one that's called the Dulles. No, no. The one that's called the Dulles Toll Road is is a public road. No, but. No, it's going to the airport. Okay, <laughs> the airport is a public entity, so it's not going to a private company. I mean, this this is one of the concerns I have about any source of revenue, and that is, you can call it a user fee. You can start out, we're going to pay for the thing, and it becomes something else. And 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 what you have traditionally in many parts of the country, not traditionally, but you have in many parts of the country, is is tolls, whether the highway tolls or bridge tolls, are going to fund transit. Uh, all the bridge tolls in, 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 in New York City are designed to generate, you know, over a half a billion dollars for subsidize the MTA that's still in big trouble. Uh, and you see that with the Dulles Toll Road, talk about a breach of faith, uh, is that it was <coughs> unilaterally given to them by Governor Kane uh, without any discussion, uh, without any debate, simply handed over to uh, people who had no ability and no experience running a road. And uh, they're now using that to 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 fund uh, the uh, Silver Line out to to Dulles Airport, and they're managing it. And so they're, they they own both. They're managing both the construction of the Silver Line and the operations of the toll road, and they're proposing to raise tolls. I mean, some people have talked about tolls of eight or nine dollars in five or six years. Now, it, it may it may they may reach that level, but they're not going to raise any revenue because people will stop using the road. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the this is the problem that that you have in many of those instances. Uh, and you know, I sympathize with you. And I've been involved. I've I've, <laughs> I've written I've written on uh, I've written on, on the, the Dulles Rail and the, the toll road proposal. And we were pleased to see. Uh, and, and this is you know related to that. We're talking about just how partisan transportation has be, has become. Uh, there was uh, uh, there was a deadlock in developing the Virginia budget for that lasted for two months. And it was over between Democrats and Republicans in the Senate because it's evenly split. It was over one issue, not unemployment compensation, not under Medicaid, not about education. It was extracting from the state of Virginia another $300 million for the Dulles Toll Road. And the state of Virginia and Governor McDonald <laughs> dug at his heels. And at the end, one Democrat turned and voted for the the, uh, against the the, the, uh, the the transfer of money, and so that was a victory. But that's that, that program's going to be out there threatening people fiscally uh, for a long time. And this is a, the hidden cost of federal funding is that <coughs> it's sort of like a gateway drug. You know, they, they give you sort of a you know a, a third of the money. They get you to commit everything. Costs escalate. Uh, use declines. It becomes very controversial. But the state and the people of the state are on the hook to bail it out. Yeah, but you have the counterexample in Northern Virginia, too, in the Beltway uh, express lanes where the state taxpayers are not building the road. The private company is building the road, and they are going to toll people for using the road, just like your grocery store charges you to come in and buy groceries. And uh, they bear all the risks of increasing costs. Uh, so if, if the cost of building those lanes goes up, they're going to pay it, not the taxpayers. So if it's odd that within a few miles of each other, Virginia's got two almost diametrically opposite uses of public-private partnership. Uh, and uh, let's all hope that we emulate the the the, the Beltway projects. Randall, I'm going to give you the last word uh, here today. Uh, well, I was just your, the second part of your question. 
Right, right. Historically, transportation funds, uh, federal transportation funds have been handed out using formulas. The formulas say your state has such and such a land area, so many people, maybe so many road miles, and you get money based on those formulas. Recently, they've been moving towards competitive grants, where they say, okay, we're going to give money where it's really necessary, but it turns out the competitive grants are given out for political reasons, not for where they're really necessary. So uh, I say get rid of earmarks, get rid of competitive grants. If there is any federal money to hand out, hand it out using formulas, and I think the formulas should take into account the user fees that are collected at the state and local level so that... Uh, state and local governments will be rewarded for emphasizing user fees for paying for their roads rather than using local taxes, general funds, to pay for roads. So returning to formulas and building user fees into the formulas uh, I think is a solution to the extent that there's any federal money involved at all. All right, well, thank you all very much. Thank you to our panel. Uh, very, Very enlightening. We do have lunch today. Uh, for those of you who are used to lunch out in the Winter Garden, so how is it's actually going to be upstairs now in the new George Yeager Conference Center. Uh, if you go out, there's the stairwell up, or you can take the elevators to the second floor. Uh, but thank you for coming, and have a good lunch. Well, see, my aspiration is that when I retire, I'll play more, and I'll actually improve my score. <laughs>